How great thou art with banjos and mandolins and fiddles. It's kind of great, isn't it? It's great. Well, we long for life without difficulties, don't we? We like things, for the most part, to go along pretty smooth. No bumps in the road. No pain, no hardship. Yet it's good to remind ourselves that great oak trees grow strong in heavy winds. And that beautiful diamonds are made under tremendous pressure. Pressure can produce good things. So too in the Christian life. It seems to be true that much of the spiritual growth that goes on in our lives happens in the midst of trials and difficulties. It's when God forces us to depend upon Him. It drives us to prayer. Causes us to rely upon Him. It's in these circumstances that we learn the lessons of faith and come out better for it. On the night before Jesus died on the cross, He told His disciples, in the world you will have tribulation. But He also assured them that in the midst of the tribulation, they would find peace in Him. They could expect difficulties, but Jesus would be there with them in the midst of the difficulty. So this morning we come to chapter 4 of the book of Acts. And here comes the pressure. Things have gone incredibly well for Jesus' apostles and disciples thus far. After Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, there came the incredible ministry success of Acts chapter 2, the preaching of the gospel by Peter, and 3,000 came to faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins on the day of Pentecost. Then in chapter 3, there's the healing of the crippled beggar. A man who had been unable to walk from birth for over 40 years. His legs, ankles, and feet had never worked. He had never learned to walk. Yet Peter commanded him to rise up and walk by the power of Jesus' name. And he did. Following this incredible, undeniable miracle, Peter powerfully preaches the gospel of Christ. That by believing in His name, your sins will be blotted out and forgiven. Even the sin of killing the Son of God can be forgiven because the salvation we have in Christ is so amazingly perfect. Look at Acts chapter 4 with me. Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. What were the results of Peter's preaching after healing the lame man? Verse 4 of Acts 4. But many of those who had heard the word, the word, that's a, that's a synonym that you, Luke uses for the gospel. But many of those who had heard the word, heard the gospel, believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. The number of men, 5,000. Likely many more when women and young people were included. Imagine the excitement to see so many coming to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the apostles in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the center of the universe, the Old Testament calls us, is being turned upside down by the gospel of Christ preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. But now the opposition to Jesus steps into the scene. 
the pressure is about to be applied in a big way by the very people who only weeks earlier pressured the Romans to crucify Jesus. The threat is very real. So to get the flow of what happened, let's go back to chapter 3 of Luke and verse 13. Let's pick it up there. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Peter's preaching. He says, The gospel of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." Here is the theme which will be repeated in the next few chapters, in the next few sermons. That theme is, God has exalted Jesus, but you killed Him. God has exalted Jesus, but you killed Him. That will show up over and over in the messages of the apostles. And remember, the chapter divisions in your Bible are not part of the inspired text. They are placed there later to help us find our way around the Bible. So now let's pick up in chapter 3, verse 25, and let's follow the story right into chapter 4. Peter's still preaching. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people... The priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. We don't really even know if Peter got to the end of his sermon here. It almost seems like he gets stopped mid-sentence. But then the opposition to the gospel comes. And it comes in the form of the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. These are the Jewish, religious, and civil rulers of the day. Sure, the Romans were ultimately in charge. And the Romans put limits on punishment local officials could hand out. For instance, the Romans were the only ones that could execute the death penalty, that could execute capital punishment, that could crucify people. But the Romans often gave a certain level of authority and responsibility to what they considered local officials to operate the way they saw fit. And such was the case in Jerusalem. Essentially, the local Jewish council, the Sanhedrin is what it was called, is a kind of combined religious governing body and city council. And here they stepped in and had Peter and John arrested and thrown in jail. Now opposition has come. And it has come in the the form of the long arm of the law. The same long arm that influenced the Romans to take action against Jesus and kill him has now incarcerated Peter and John, the two leading apostles and the leaders of the growing and fledgling group of believers in Jerusalem. They are in trouble because they are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. He told them in chapter 1 to be his witnesses. How are they going to respond in the face of the pressure? The pressure to stop talking. To conform to the rule of the Jewish authorities. Look at verse 5. 
on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. These are the big shots in Jerusalem. These are the people in charge. They run the show. They've gotten together. Verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Notice what Peter is saying here. He's saying, you're going to judge us because we healed the crippled guy? What's your problem? We did a good thing. You should be happy. We shouldn't be on trial. But no, they're on trial. Well, now, in verse, starting in verse 10, Peter's going to tell them who is responsible for this dramatic change in this man. Peter is going to tell them who healed him. Verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by Him this man is standing before you well. Notice the theme we just saw back in chapter 3. God exalts Jesus, but the people reject Him, the leaders reject Him. Jesus is exalted. The people refuse to believe. Peter isn't backing down one little bit. His boldness is fueled by the Holy Spirit. This is different from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Rather, this is a special empowering or controlling of the Spirit. The word controlled is very much the meaning here of filled. Peter is empowered and controlled by the Spirit and therefore preaches with power the message of the Gospel. One really interesting aspect of Peter's sermon is how close by Peter keeps the crippled man. It's like as he's preaching, he's got the illustration of the power of Christ standing right there. As if to say to the Jewish leaders, don't you see him? Are you blind? Well, yes, they are blind. Because this man is the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit. The physical healing by the name of Jesus, of this crippled man, points to the spiritual healing power of Jesus to bring salvation. You see, both physical illness and spiritual deadness have the same root cause. It is sin. It is our sin. We are sinners. Both are the result of sin coming into this world and Jesus is the one who can deliver from both. The crippled man's presence makes it impossible for the Jewish leaders to deny the power of Christ without appearing to be out of touch with reality. Peter continues in verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the core of chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. 
Peter is preaching the very next morning after getting arrested and he's still in custody. And what's he doing? He's preaching about the very same thing that got him thrown in jail in the first place. This is the third full-blown sermon of Peter recorded in Acts. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, Peter told the crowds that in the name of Jesus, you will have forgiveness of sins and be saved. He preached the gospel. At the healing of the lame man in chapter, in chapter 3 of Acts, Peter told them that by repenting of their sins and trusting in Christ, your sins would be blotted out. That's the gospel. Now in Acts 4, Peter tells them there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven than Jesus by which you must be saved. Once again, Peter is preaching the gospel. Matter of fact, about one-third of the whole book of Acts is preaching. It is sermons by the apostles Peter and Paul. And what is that consistent message throughout the book of Acts? It is the gospel. It is that Christ died for our sins. The pattern of preaching and teaching in Acts, the pattern for us today, is preaching the gospel. The good news about Jesus Christ. And when Peter says Jesus is the stone rejected by the Jews, he's referring back to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. Quoted by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then Peter uses it again in the letter to first, of 1 first Peter. Psalm 118 is a psalm of deliverance and salvation. And Jesus is the one the psalmist is writing about. That's what Peter is telling us in Acts chapter 4. It's so very appropriate given the opposition and pressure that Peter and John are facing at this moment in time that Peter goes to Psalm 118. Listen to a few passages from Psalm 118. Verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Verses 5 and 6. Out of my distress I call on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? What a great psalm in the midst of persecution. Verses 8 and 9. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes than to trust in the authorities. Verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Verses 19 to 27 of Psalm 118. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. What's Jesus called? The door? The gate? Verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. He has made his light to shine on us. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 is screaming, Jesus Christ is the Savior. Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our strength and song. He is our salvation. He is the gate. He is the door of our righteousness. Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected. He is the cornerstone of the church. He is the light that shines forth the love that endures forever. Just as in Acts 2 and chapter 3, Peter quoted from the prophet Joel and from the Psalms, and from Moses, and from Isaiah, pointing out that all are pointing to Christ over the centuries, that God has prepared the world in the fullness of time for the coming of a Savior, Jesus Christ. So here he does so again. I had the picture in my mind of Peter with like a two-by-four in his hand, and he's beating the Jewish leaders over the head with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can you hear He's telling them, Jesus Christ is your Messiah. He is your Christ. He is all the prophets spoke of. What other God can save? Where else can you take refuge in the midst of trouble? Who else provides a way of righteousness in the midst of our sin? Who else can pay our penalty for our sin? Who else is the rock we can trust in the midst of the storm? Psalm 118 is the perfect lead-in to the statement of verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven than Jesus by which we must be saved. Peter is asserting that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is no other way of salvation apart from faith alone in Christ alone. There is salvation in no one else. It's an extraordinary statement by Peter to these Jews. But not a new one. For if they had been listening to Jesus, they would have heard Him say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. These statements are from the world's point of view. Arrogant statements. Insensitive statements even. To Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus or a member of some other religion, it seems unloving and at the very least insensitive. Unless our Lord Jesus and Peter here in Acts 4 are telling us the truth. And as Christians, we affirm that they are. And in our day, it isn't the statement that Jesus saves that offends but the insistence that Jesus alone can save. Thus making every other religion false and a form of idolatry. Peter is proclaiming here that there are not many ways to God. There is only one. And it is Jesus Christ alone. Jesus said there is a narrow way that leads to salvation and the broad way that leads to destruction. 
Well, the sign over the Broadway, it doesn't say we're going to destruction. People who are on it think they're going to be saved. Some other way than Jesus, they think there is when there is not. Where Peter was fearless in his presentation of Christ and the Jewish leaders were at least impressed. Look at verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now saying they are uneducated and common men does not mean they were stupid. It means they had never been trained in a, Jewish, in a Jewish seminary, in a Jewish school. They'd never been to religious school. So they were ordinary men, like you and me. They are not the privileged of society. These are fishermen, alright? They're manual laborers. They are everyday Joes, you might say. But what is clear from their passion is they had been with Christ. And now the power of the Holy Spirit is working through them. Let's pick it up in verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Interesting that one of the reasons given by the Jewish council for not punishing Peter and John is public opinion. The Jewish leaders are worried about the spin. What will people think? After all, this healing is evident to all the people of Jerusalem because the people are all praising God for what happened to this man who was more than 40 years old it's had an impact, an impact on the leaders, an impact on the people, and they quite honestly don't know what to do. So they are told to no longer speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Well, that's clearly something Peter and John cannot obey. This was their mission, wasn't it? Given to them by the Lord prior to His ascension, they are to, in the words of Jesus, be, why, be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Peter and John leave no doubt where they stand and throw it right back in the face of the Jewish leaders. They are going to witness to what they have seen. They will proclaim the life, death, 
and resurrection of Jesus. The governing authorities in Jerusalem have told the disciples what to do. They've drawn a line in the sand, and Peter and John and the rest of the apostles proceed to step right over it, as we will see. They're not intimidated. For when civil or religious authorities forbid what God explicitly requires, what must we do? We must obey God. We must obey God rather than men and be willing to suffer the consequences of our actions. No human authority can overrule our duty to obey God. And this issue, the very witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is of utmost importance. Paul calls it an issue of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. And the muzzling of the gospel is not an option. Peter and John knew what was on the line. They were willing to give their lives for the good news about Jesus if that is what God's will has for them in that moment. Matter of fact, by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, one of the apostles will give their lives for the gospel. Stephen. Well, how will the church of Christ react now that the gauntlet has been thrown down by the authorities in Jerusalem? Maybe they should turn inward for a while. Maybe just press pause and let things cool down. Take it easy. Don't rock the boat anymore. Well, that might be the politically smart thing to do. Or perhaps we should get out of here and look for a place where people will just leave us alone and let us be for a bit. Maybe we should run home. Maybe we should go back to Galilee. Get out of Jerusalem. Maybe just going someplace where we all believe the same thing and can kind of hang out in our holy huddle would be a better thing to do. Well, they don't do that. What they did was come together with the other believers, with the church of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, and they pray. Here we see how they faced the opposition to Jesus and His gospel and how they overcame it. Let's notice some of the specifics of their prayer. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. He's quoting from Psalm 2 from our scripture reading this morning. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. In case you're concerned maybe that Peter's only blaming the Jews for crucifying Jesus, here he brings the Gentiles into it too. Okay? We're to blame just as much as they are, we Gentiles. He doesn't let us off the hook. And then he says, once again, just like he did in chapter 2, This is all according to the plan and purpose of God. None of this is outside of the will of our Lord. 
all of this is the fulfillment of the Old Testament that shows forth the purpose and plan of God in all history to save His people from their sins. Verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness. While You stretch out Your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's look at some of the specifics of their prayer. It serves as a great model for us. After this crisis, the first thing they did was get together with other believers and pray. It's a natural reaction for people who knew God and trusted in Him. Notice they did not pray for judgment upon those who were persecuting them. Nor did they ask to be spared from the persecution. What did they ask for? They asked for strength in the midst of it. And they also prayed to be able to preach the message boldly and not to cower in fear of men. Interesting, isn't it? Didn't pray for judgment on their persecutors. Didn't pray even that they would be taken out of the situation. But that they would be strengthened in the situation to proclaim the glories of Christ. Also, what they prayed about in verse 29 was specifically what they were dealing with. There was specificity to their prayer. They followed Jesus. He was crucified for claiming to be king. And they realized that they too could be charged as fellow insurrectionists with him. But they didn't run. And they didn't hide. Notice the prayer actually begins by extolling the greatness of God. It calls him the sovereign Lord. The all-powerful God who controls all. The Sovereign Lord. He is the Creator. He is in control of the creation. And in quoting Psalm 2, he's saying that the Sovereign Lord is in control of all nations and kings. And that even though the Gentiles were opposed to him, the Romans represented by Pilate and Herod were opposed, just like the Jewish leadership was, they were under God's control as well. And while all these are opposed and responsible for their sin and rejection, they have all acted in accordance with the predetermined plan of God. Now specifically note what they prayed for in verse 29. They prayed that God would give them boldness in their actions and speech. They prayed God would graciously grant more healings, signs, and wonders so the gospel would go forth with boldness. Now don't kid yourselves. They had spouses. They had children. They had elderly parents. They had all those things to worry about. That's what I would have been worried about. I would have thought of all those things. And I could have come up with a great rationalization for toning it down. I can convince myself of almost anything if I think about it long enough. 
But that's not what they did. They boldly went forth with the gospel. They trusted the sovereign Lord to take care of their families and their physical needs. They could have walked away, but they did not. They were resolute. And they were quick in their response. They knew God's will for them was to be faithful no matter the cost. They were to be His witnesses. That was their mission. Verse 31 indicates a a physical acknowledgement by God that He heard their prayer. It is as if God was saying, I heard your prayer and the power at work in you is the same power that can shake the ground where you are standing and will shake the world for the gospel. You ever thought about this? How did these common, untrained apostles and disciples start a movement that believed in Jesus Christ and proclaimed Christ and it goes from this little place in Jerusalem to the, from the upper room and it spreads across first Judea and Samaria and then across the Roman Empire and then across the whole world? By what power does that happen? They didn't just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get going. The power of the Holy Spirit was behind them. The power of Christ was driving them. That's how they did it. Now the obvious question is, are we prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Does boldness characterize our witness for Christ? After all, we're pretty common people, aren't we? I don't think we have any U.S. senators here or... uh, high government officials in our church. We're everyday folk. How did common men like Peter or John go from hiding in that upper room to boldly proclaiming the gospel? Well, it's by the power of the Spirit. Not by our power, not by our might, not by our strength. Do we complain about relatively minor things, inconveniences really, while brothers and sisters in Christ, in Egypt, in Iraq, in Africa, in China, are imprisoned, interrogated, tortured, and put to death because they are unwilling to deny Christ because of their witness for Christ. There may come a day when preaching Jesus as the only way of salvation might be defined as a hate crime in our own country. When this message of salvation in Christ alone will be declared as intolerant, and ironically be declared not compatible with a diverse and pluralistic society. Are we prepared for that? When the pressure comes and the opposition of Satan, and be clear, Satan is behind all of the opposition to the gospel. He is the father of lies. Let's remember when that happens, who is the greatest? It is our Savior, Jesus Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer, rhetorically, is one and nothing. Jesus Christ is for us. No one can be against us. For God grants us His grace under pressure. So we might be instruments of His hand as witnesses for Jesus Christ. We are indeed blessed and privileged to be Christ's ambassadors in this broken world. 
And as we pray in the midst of tough times, let's remember sometimes God's way of answering prayer is not by removing the pressure, but by granting us His grace and increasing our strength to bear under it through the trial. I'm going to finish with a story from France in the 16th century this morning. Five young graduates from a seminary in Switzerland, all in their early 20s, returned home to Lyon, France, after spending time in Geneva with John Calvin. On their way home in April 1552, they were arrested and imprisoned for their faith. There began a series of letters between themselves and Calvin, while Calvin urged them to be bold and keep the faith. One of their letters to John Calvin said this. We testify that this persecution in prison is the true school of the children of God, in which we learn more than the disciples of the philosophers ever did in their universities. Indeed, it must not be imagined that one can have a true understanding of many of the passages of Scripture without having been instructed by the teacher of all truth in this college, in this prison. They went on. It is true that one can have some knowledge of Scripture and can talk about it and discuss it a great deal, but this is like playing at charades. We therefore praise God with all our hearts and give Him undying thanks that He has been pleased to give us by His grace not only the theory of His Word, but also the practice of it, and that He has granted us this honor, which in no small thing, which is no small thing for us who are vessels so poor and fragile and mere worms creeping on the earth. On May 16, 1555, all five of them were burned at the stake for their testimony for Christ. Do we pray for boldness of this kind? The situation we face in our culture is nowhere near as dangerous as threatening as those faced by these young men or by Peter and John or by the early church. But they are real situations. And in our weakness, we need to pray for boldness and courage to witness for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you For Jesus Christ. For by your grace and power, you have raised him from the dead. And we thank you, Lord, that assurance of salvation has been given. That there is an ultimate judgment to be performed by the Lord Jesus. And an ultimate salvation as well. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the evidence of it. And we ask, Lord, if there are some here who have never believed in your marvelous grace, touch their hearts. Cause them by your grace to flee to Christ who died for sinners. And may they be so enlightened as to rest in him, in what he has done once and for all, as our high priest seated at your right hand. As we leave, Lord, help us to be faithful to the message that has come to us. In your grace, grant us boldness in our weakness. Keep our hearts focused on our mission as your witnesses. 
keep ever before us our need for the power of the Spirit given to us through Christ to cause our hearts to turn to Jesus for eternal life. We thank you for the ministry you have given to us with Benit and Sia Sasani in India. May the message that Pastor Chris and Patrick Innes brought to India bear much fruit among your people there. May the gospel go, go forth boldly through Living Hope Bible Church in Pune, India and go forth boldly amongst the Marathi-speaking peoples in India. We are amazed by your work. We are amazed by the salvation you bring. We thank you for the privilege of being part of it as your children. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.